If you will join me this morning, we will be in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we are looking at verses 16 through 21. The title of our sermon this morning is Coming to the Light, and our key words for our worshipers in training are loved, world, and light. And if you'd like to follow along in the blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 888. That's better than page 666. Page 888. Well, this morning we're going to finish our short series on the Lord Jesus Christ. The first Sunday that we talked about this series, we considered the question that has always been asked of Jesus. Who is this man? And then last time we looked at what Paul wrote about Jesus coming into the world, as he said in Galatians, in the fullness of time. And we considered the significance of Jesus coming into the world as the God-man from heaven to earth, taking on human flesh and rescuing mankind from sin and death. So today we're going to conclude by considering what the Bible means when it talks to us about coming to Jesus. What does it mean to step into the light, and specifically the light of Jesus and having new life in Jesus Christ? And what does it look like for those who refuse to put their hope and their faith and their trust and their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ? More to the point, we can say the question really is, what is the gospel, first and foremost, and what are its implications? When we talk about coming to the light of Christ, we are talking about believing the gospel. And when we believe the gospel, what is it that happens? What are the results of believing the gospel? When we explore these questions, we understand more fully what it means to come to or come into the light. Now, many of you might be thinking right now, well, that's pretty simplistic. We are already Christians. Of course, we know what the gospel is, right? But maybe we shouldn't be so quick to jump to that conclusion. The reality is, I ask people, what is the gospel all of the time? And it is not very often that I get a very straightforward answer or even a correct answer to that question at all. When we interview students for our school in Nigeria, this is one of our very first questions that we ask them. Many of you will recall we made a video in Nigeria several years ago where we went out on the streets and asked people if they were Christians, and if they said yes, we asked them, what is the gospel? And we found maybe one or two people had maybe kind of sort of some idea, and believe you me, I got a lot of pushback on that video from some missions workers in Nigeria, and in fact, I still hear about it today because they think we made people look bad or that we made it seem like Christians didn't know anything, or they didn't know their Bibles. And so I tell them, that was actually the point. We wanted to identify the fact that we have a great need to train pastors in the churches because the people on the streets don't know what the gospel is. But this is definitely not a uniquely African problem. This is a Christianity problem because so many things have been confused, so many things have been combined in people's understanding of what we mean when we say gospel, 
that very few people really have a straightforward understanding that the Bible gives to us. So even now, I want you to think, what is the gospel? It's no wonder that often people assume certain men are good preachers or that they're preaching the gospel when in fact they may not be preaching the gospel at all because we're confused about what it is. So many sermons are preached that never even mention the Lord Jesus Christ and they never even come close to the gospel and yet it's assumed that it's Good preaching. Listen, if you can hear the same sermon in a Jewish synagogue or in a university history class and everyone is happy and everyone is in agreement, there's a problem. If it is truly Christian, it must contain the gospel. And if it contains the gospel, it will be uniquely Christ-centered, whether or not it's in the book of Genesis or Proverbs or Habakkuk or John or Romans or Revelation. All of Scripture points to the Lord Jesus Christ, is about the Lord Jesus Christ, is for the Lord Jesus Christ, and so all of Scripture helps us to see and understand and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But still, what is the gospel? The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the gospel? Oh, that's something you do in response to the gospel, but is that itself the gospel? Don't you have to make some sort of distinction between what the gospel is and how you respond to it? How about this? Jesus says the first and most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all of your strength. And the second is like unto it to love your neighbor as yourself. Is that the gospel? How do you know? Why or why not? Well, you might say the gospel is all about salvation, which is about getting ready for eternity. It's also about things on this earth like social justice and restoring the world and transforming society. Is that the gospel? Perhaps you might say, I hear this often, the gospel is the first four books of the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call those the gospels. Is that accurate? So you see, we may all use gospel words but they don't all mean the same things in our minds. In theory, we believe we are talking about the gospel and saying how wonderful it is, but we may mean very different things. We're using the same words, but we're like two ships passing in the night. We're on different pages. So what may seem like the most basic question in all of Christianity is also the most important question and one of the most misunderstood questions. And what better way to answer the question than to look at what is likely the most memorized, the most well-known verse in all of Scripture, John 3, 16. We will look at verses 16 through 21, but there's a good reason why it is so often memorized and why it is so well-known. And it is important because we don't want to be sort of stuck-up Christians who look down their noses at other Christians who like to cite John 3.16. 
There's a tendency sometimes for us to have an attitude as though we maybe have, we've surpassed the simplicity of John 3.16. And when others say anything about it, we sort of think, oh, that's, that's nice. Maybe they'll graduate to my level one day. Yes, I will admit it is sometimes used out of context. It is often distorted to say something it doesn't say. But remember, this is God's holy word. So may it never be that we think it's any different than the rest of the Bible in terms of its importance, in terms of its significance, and in fact, we can say that because of what John 3.16 says, it is conveying some of the most important truth that the Bible has for us. So let's not forget that as we read and think about these important questions. So let's read together, beginning in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." Now, first and foremost, we should understand that the gospel is news. Yes, we say it is good news, but it is news. And what is the point of news? To report it, to announce it, to make it known, right? But the gospel is a very specific kind of news, proclaiming a very specific kind of message, namely the news about what God has done and is doing in the world. Even more specifically, it is the news of what God has done and is doing in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is supremely focused on the perfect law-fulfilling life He lived on behalf of sinners, the sacrificial sinner's death that He died in the place of sinners, and his being resurrected from the dead to defeat sin and death. The gospel also includes the news that all who believe in Christ by faith can and will be saved. So there's a lot that can be explained and expanded upon in all of this, but the most basic way to think about this question, what is the gospel, and to hit all of the bases along The way is something along the lines of Jesus lived a life that I could not live. He died a death that I deserve to die. He was raised from the dead so that by faith I can stand before God on Christ's righteousness and not my own. Now, obviously, there are different ways to say that, but those are the basic elements of the gospel. And listen, that's it. That is it. The problem 
is that the basic but very important news of the gospel is so often confused with and mixed with and intermingled with the implications of the gospel. In other words, we need to make a distinction between what the gospel is and what believing the gospel does. What it is and what it does are two different things. It's one thing to have and proclaim the news. It's another thing to believe the news and live in light of the news. And so you cannot live out the gospel. That's often said. People say that often. You cannot live out the gospel. It has already been lived out by Christ. You cannot do the gospel. It has already been done on your behalf. What you can do is announce, proclaim, preach, teach, tell others about the gospel, and you can believe the gospel. But if we do not make the proper distinction, then everything Christian becomes the gospel. And what happens is that the gospel really becomes nothing at all. So when the gospel is everything... It is really nothing. So then there's no problem with a sermon called How to Have a Happy Marriage and says nothing about Christ or 10 ways to bring up your nasty little children or how to be better. But they never mention Jesus. They never really deal with the biblical text. They never actually deal with our souls, but only focus on our our outward actions and activity. And so inadvertently, we can be well-meaning, and yet we still sort of imply in our well-meaningness that the gospel got us to this point. But now that we have the gospel, it's just time that we move on to the rest of the gospel. But there is no rest of the gospel It's just that we've lumped it all together. So having an important marriage is just as important as Jesus' sinless life. But I'm telling you right now, those things are on two different planets in terms of their importance. Now don't hear me wrong. I want us all to have happy marriages. But your happy marriage is not the gospel. Paul said the gospel is of first importance not your happy marriage. However, when you believe the gospel and when the message of the gospel is now being applied to your everyday life, we will have happier, more fulfilling marriages and everything else we can think about applying the gospel to. I hope you see the distinction. It's very important. So, getting into the text. Remember, As we get to this place in John chapter 3, this is when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus, he was a ruler of the Jews that came to Jesus at night, Nick at night. You see, that's very clever. So Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. 
And this is when Jesus famously said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That's the call of the new life, right? Listen, if you are to be right with God, you must be born again. During the first great awakening, awakening as the evangelist George Whitfield and John Wesley were preaching the gospel up and down the east coast of the United States, spending significant amounts of time in Savannah, in fact, Whitfield was said to have preached John chapter 3 over 3,000 times. I guarantee he preached that text in Savannah and likely did so many times. Now, Whitfield was asked on one occasion, why do you go around preaching you must be born again all the time? You go someplace and that is all you say. You must be born again. John 3, you must be born again. Why do you keep emphasizing that? And Whitfield looked at the man and he said, because you must be born again. (laughs) It's so profound in its simplicity, isn't it? That's what struck Nicodemus. But it is truly at the heart of what we mean when we talk about being Christians. We are born again. How does that happen? We believe the gospel, and in believing the gospel, we become those who are born again. We are, as Paul says, new creations. And that's what Jesus goes on to explain. How does all of this happen? Well, we see in verses 16 through 18 that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you will have everlasting life. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. The great evangelist D.L. Moody said this verse brought him to an understanding of the love of God. As Moody tells it early in his ministry, he had gone to England, and while he was there, he met a young minister by the name of Henry Morehouse. And in the conversation, Morehouse said to Moody, I'm thinking about going to America. And Moody responded, well, if you should ever get to Chicago, come down to my church and I will give you the chance to preach. Now, when Moody said that, he admitted later he didn't really mean it. He realized that he said, he said that and uh, he, he hoped that the man would not come to America because he had never actually heard him preach. But sometime later, he received a telegram, and it said, Just arrived in New York. We'll be in Chicago on Sunday. Morehouse. Moody did not know what to do. He had promised the man his pulpit, but he had never heard him preach before. So after discussing the matter with his wife and then with the church leaders, he decided to allow him to preach one time. And then if he did okay, he could preach again. So Moody had to go out of town, and Morehouse came to the church in Chicago. And after the week was over, Moody returned and asked his wife, how did the young preacher do? And his wife responded, Morehouse is a much better preacher than you. He is telling sinners that God loves them. You must go and hear him. And Moody said, what? He's telling sinners that God loves them. That is not true. 
And she said, well, he's been preaching John 3.16 all week long. And so Moody hurried to get down to the church that night, and Morehouse stood in the pulpit, and to begin, he said, I have been hunting for a text all week, and I have not been able to find a better one than John 3.16, so I'll just talk about that once more. And later, Moody testifies that on that night, he saw the greatness of the love of God that he had never seen before from this one verse. And truly, it does show us the greatness of God's love, doesn't it? We see that it is a vast, unboundless, bottomless sea of love. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is the why of the gospel. We have the good news, but why did God do it? It's not simply God is love, but rather that God so loved the world that he gave. That is what lies at the foundation of the new birth. Nicodemus, do you want to understand how it is that you can be born again? It is through the overflowing, unbounded love of God. That is the thrust of his words. God so loved the world. When we believe, when we have faith in Christ, when our trust is in him, we have eternal life as our present possession here and now. Eternal life is ours now because God so loved. And notice also, God offers this love to whom? To the world. Now, Throughout the Bible, there are various words that are used for world, but this one is often used to point uh, with a sinful connotation. So the point that's being made is that God so loved the sinners of this world. Remember at the beginning of John's Gospel, there's two chapters prior to this, he writes that Jesus came into the world that he himself made, but his own world did not recognize him. He came to his people And his own people did not recognize who he was. Wow. But, he tells us now, God so loved this world that he created into which the Son came where he was forgotten, where he was despised, where he was unknown, where he was forsaken, that he could give his Son. So, does this mean that God says, world You are so lovely in my eyes, I cannot imagine an eternity without you. The wit with which you address me, the beauty of your guitar playing and singing on Sundays. When you worship me, I feel so complete. World, I love you because you're so lovable. Now, if we use the world's definition of what love is, that's exactly what that would mean, but that's not at all what the Bible tells us, is it? The Bible says, while we were yet enemies of Christ, Christ died for us. At the heart of the gospel is this reality that there's not a single mark of our own personal goodness that is involved, but it is all as a result of God first loving us. And he didn't give us his second best. No, John's gospel keeps reiterating that in eternity past, the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Father. And there is a unity of love in the Godhead that we can barely glimpse. If it surfaces again in the great high priestly prayer of 
John 17. It shows up in John 5 and, and here in John 3 and in John 14. It's spectacular. God the Father loved God the Son from all eternity and loved this disgusting, rebellious, anarchic world so much that he gave that Son that he has always loved. You see, it's not just that Jesus loves us. His Father loves us and sends the Son, and the Son is committed to doing the Father's will and fulfilling his covenant obligations. This is when we experience new birth, when we turn to that Son. It's all grounded in what God has done. This is what the gospel is. It's the good news of what God has done. That's what we're announcing. That's what we're proclaiming. And that's amazing, isn't it? So to summarize, in verse 16, Jesus describes two possible results of God sending his Son. Whoever believes on him will have eternal life. I know some of you are, you're like, you're so Calvinist, you have a hard time saying that, but it's true. Whoever believes in Christ will have eternal life. You should be able to say that and say, Amen. But whoever does not believe on Christ, Jesus says, will perish. But now, look at the way verse 18 describes these two possibilities. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Well, what's the difference? The difference is that the result of believing are not, and not believing are described in terms of perishing and eternal life. In terms of being condemned and being not condemned. In other words, verse 18 shifts over to legal language, the language of the courtroom, the language of judgment. Right? A judge says condemned and not condemned. So Jesus has moved from the language of life and death to the language of guilty and not guilty. And squeezed right in the middle of those two in verse 17, he raises the question, if Christ did not come to condemn, why are some condemned? It seems in verse 17 that Jesus is wanting to make a clarification that the mission of Jesus in the world and God's purpose in sending his son into the world was not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In other words, while deserving, the believer, the believer is not condemned. And even more fulfilling, even more rewarding is that the believer will not be condemned. Now let's be careful here. The Bible, and in fact the Gospel of John itself, insists that God has given Jesus all authority on heaven and earth to judge the world. But judging the world and condemning the world are two different things. Remember, Jesus came into a world that is already lost and condemned. He did not come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. He came into a lost world where everyone was rightly condemned in order that he might save some. 
That not all the world will be saved is made perfectly clear by the next verses. But God's purpose in the mission of Jesus was to bring salvation into the world that he might save some. That is why John calls Jesus the Savior of the world. But take notice now in verse 18. John is no longer focusing on the world, but now he distinguishes between the one who believes and is therefore not condemned and the one who does not believe and is therefore condemned already. Why? Well, again, because they are born into this world condemned. We are born into this world condemned. We are all conceived in sin, in rebellion against God, and as a result are condemned already because we have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We are in need of a Savior even before Jesus comes into the world. So this person actually compounds his guilt by not believing in the name of that Son when he has come into the world, when they've heard the gospel, and they refuse to believe anyway. So since the world was not neutral when Jesus came, the result is not that some people moved from neutrality to being anti-Jesus, and some move from neutrality to being pro-Jesus. Nobody was neutral. And nobody is neutral. We have all sinned. We are all guilty. We are all perishing. And prior to Christ saving any of us, we are all enemies of God. So we are all under God's righteous wrath. And we are already condemned. So there's no need to await the final day of judgment. The person who disbelieves in the Father's one and only Son stands condemned already, and God's wrath remains on him, and the only remedy is, with, is that we believe in the one who came. That our faith, our hope, our allegiance, our righteousness is all banked on and helped up and held up by the one who came into the world to live for us and to die for us because the Father so loved us that he gave him up for us that we might live eternally. And so John goes on to show us in our final point this morning, verses 19 through 21, that the guilt of not coming to the light is in your heart, but the grace of coming to the light is in the heart of God. Read again verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The coming of Jesus into the world clarifies that unbelief is our fault and belief is God's gift. Which means that if we do not come to Christ but rather perish eternally, we magnify God's justice. And if we do come to Christ and gain eternal life, we magnify God's grace. Now notice, either way, God is glorified and God's attributes are magnified. Now here in verses 19 through 21, the same division 
that is described in verses 16 through 18 comes up again. Only this time, instead of using the words believe and not believe, John uses the words love and hate and come. Jesus is really drilling down to show why some people believe and some people do not. He's describing the kind of judgment that really does happen when light comes into the world. And it turns out that those who are condemned in this judgment are condemned by what they love and by what they hate. And those who are rescued from this judgment are rescued by God's grace. So you see how helpless we are in ourselves. In ourselves, we are only condemned. It is only by God's grace that we find salvation. It is only by God's grace that we have saving love. Now, of course, in verse 19, the light that has come into the world is Jesus himself. He's talking about himself here. And so I take this to mean that Jesus is the very presence of God himself who John described in 1 John chapter 1. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So when the Word becomes flesh, light came into the world, for God is light. And when He comes into the world, the truth about all things comes with Him. The truth about God, the truth about ourselves, the truth about the way of salvation, the truth about what is good and true and beautiful, the truth about evil and ugliness. The truth about how we ought to live, all right thinking, all right feeling, all right doing is measured and defined by Jesus. And that is some of what it means to be the light of the world. So verse 19 that says, uh, says that coming, the coming of Jesus is a kind of judgment. How so? Well, John just lays it all out here, right? At least five things. He says... First, they loved the darkness rather than the light. Second, their works were evil. Third, they do wicked things. Fourth, they do not come to the light. And fifth, they do not want to be exposed. It's a damning list of descriptors, isn't it? Now, Jesus is saying, excuse me, is not saying that these sins do not happen in public when he's talking about darkness. No, many people flaunt their sins quite publicly. But they only do this where the light of Christ is so banished that they can get approval from other people that matter to them. And the approval of those who are around. In other words, where darkness abounds publicly, you can sin publicly. You can sin publicly because there is no light in where you are. We've all seen those environments. It's likely that we've been in those environments. And in so many ways, the world that people turn to for their entertainment is exactly that kind of environment so often. But when Christ... When Christ, the light of the world, begins to shine on a person's life, it must either break him and bring him to the end of himself and bring us to faith and repentance, or it will drive us to further darkness. There are no other options. Because it is simply intolerable when our sinful works and thoughts and feelings are forced out into the light of Christ. 
Sin is so ugly and so monstrous and so hideous that if we want to live in our sin, we must surround ourselves with darkness. It must live in illusion and deceit. Have you ever wondered why it is that people who are living in sin begin to distance themselves from other Christians, distance themselves from the church? It's because they cannot stand to be in the light of Christ because their sin is so dark and light dispels that darkness, but sin hates the light and loves the darkness and will not come to the light. This is the inner working of unbelief in Jesus. It will not come to Jesus. And that, Jesus says in verse 19, is the judgment. The response of loving the darkness and hating the light reveals that the guilt of not coming to Jesus lies in the heart of man. It lies in us. We don't come to Jesus because we don't want to come to Jesus. There's a bondage here, but the thing about our bondage is that we are the ones who have tied ourselves up and have held ourselves hostage. Every single day that we live in darkness apart from Christ, we are recommitting ourselves to bondage and eventual suicide, and it shows by the things that we love and the things that we hate. And so the ultimate contrast between the believer and the unbeliever is not that one hates the light and the other loves it. That's true, and that is vastly important. And the ultimate contrast is not that the unbeliever will not come to Jesus, but the believer will come to Jesus. Again, that's vastly true and important. But the ultimate contrast is that the believer... The one who loves the light, the one who comes to Jesus, comes, how? By the grace of God alone. That is, he comes with a profound sense of God-dependent humility that every good thing he does, he is able to do only, as John tells us, in God. And that means only by God's power. That's what he says in verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out, how? In God. So there is a kind of judgment that came into the world when Jesus Christ came into the world. And this judgment reveals that the guilt of not coming to Jesus lies in the heart of man, in the heart of man that loves darkness and hates the light. But the grace of coming to Jesus comes from the heart of God. In other words, unbelief is our fault. Belief is God's gift. Which means that if we do not come to Christ but instead perish, we magnify God's justice. And if we do come to Christ and gain eternal life, we magnify God's grace. God will be magnified. And so, have you come into the light? Have you believed the gospel? Have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? It can be true right here and right now. In your heart right now, God calls you to step out of the darkness and come to the light and say to God as you come, without your work, I would not be coming. I magnify your grace. 
All that I am, all that I have is yours. And everyone in here who has magnified the grace of God in salvation by walking with Christ will tell you, if you come to the light, there is no darkness. And here's the best news in all of that. If you come to Christ, Jesus will not turn you away. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave the light of the world to the world so that when we believe in him, we won't perish forever, but instead we will have everlasting life here and now. Is there any better news than that? I don't think so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for your gracious provision, for your kindness, for your grace, and yes, indeed, for your love in loving us to the extent that you would send your one and only Son to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised from the dead for us, that as we believe in him by faith, we might know everlasting life here and now. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for all that your word tells us and teaches us. And we pray, especially this morning, for all who may be here who do not know Christ, that you indeed would do as your word says and bring them to the end of themselves, that they would believe this gospel, that they might walk faithfully and joyfully with the Lord Jesus all the days of their lives. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.